Welcome, fellow cosmic explorers, to the Cosmic Chronicles podcast, where imagination meets reality and science fiction comes to life. I'm again your host from Quinn's Ideas, and I am joined by my co-host, James. How's it going, James? Doing good. So you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Amazon Music, Google Podcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you click the link in the description, it will direct you to our pages on social media, including YouTube, Instagram, and Discord. So just a heads up before we get started, the Indiegogo campaign for my brand new graphic novel, The Lie Behind the Star, and Interstellar Mystery is launching right now. And you can find out more about that by clicking the link in the description. Thanks so much. Our topic today is megastructures. Megastructures are a staple of science fiction, and they've been a part of science fiction for a very, very long time. Space is enormous, and that vacuum can be filled with anything, no matter how large. From habitats to weapons to vehicles, megastructures are a part of almost all space epics. Now, there are many different kinds of megastructures, and in fact, decades ago, sci-fi author Larry Neven collected classifications of megastructures in his essay, Bigger Than Worlds. And that essay is still referenced to this day. Larry Neven is like the megastructure guy. He wrote the book Ringworld because he loved the idea so much. And a lot of it was actually based on real science. So there are several classifications of megastructures, as I said. And we'll start with the one dreamed up by Larry Neven himself. The Ringworld. So a ring world would be this huge circular ribbon, very strong, and it would have gravity because it rotated uh, with a star at its center. So this idea was first used in Larry Neven's 1970 novel Ring World, and he extrapolated upon it and expanded the scientific ideas in his sequels, including Ring World Engineers. It was pointed out to him at some point after the first book that the way the ring world was described initially would actually be unstable and would require some form of active control system to keep it centered on its sun. So he basically explains more of the details, um, more of the engineering details and how that would work in the sequels. But we'll get to more about the ring world a little bit later. James, have you read The Ring World by any chance? I actually just read it a few days ago. It's a pretty interesting series. It's a little dated as far as like the characters go. But it's like, a bit campy. I actually found myself campy. laughing at some of the characters. It was Absolutely. comical. Absolutely funny. It's got that 1970s campy sci-fi feel for sure, but also some really interesting macro engineering ideas. Definitely. So the next classification of megastructure that we're going to get to is called The Hollow World. So this is like an asteroid or maybe even like a, a planet sized rock or anything like that, something similar that's been hollowed out and set rotating it so that it has artificial gravity. And so it would have landscaping on the inside and it may or may not be also like equipped with some sort of propulsion system so that it can move its way through the cosmos. So it then becomes a vehicle. 
So this is also a super old idea in science fiction. And this is one of those that's like so old and so like kind of common that it's almost like impossible to figure out who thought of it first. What comes to mind for me is Nowhere from the Marvel comics. Interesting. You know, that enormous severed head of like an ancient celestial being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see the thread of similarity there. And then moving on to the next classification, the kind of flip side of the hollow world, I guess, is the artificial planet, right? So this is a very common, super old idea in science fiction of, you know, like a planet size, a planet size sphere that's been artificially constructed. Otherwise, it might be like totally similar to a um, regular planet or it might have like or it might show signs of the fact that it's been constructed. So there's some that are meant to look like they're totally formed naturally, like the ones at the end of like Hitchhiker's Guide. Um, and then some, it's very clear that it's been like constructed. So like I said, this is a very old sci-fi idea. And apparently it was first used in Olaf Stapleton's um, novel, Star Maker. And that was way back in 1937. I tend to think about Terry Pratchett's Strata when I think of artificial planets, because um, in that book, you have a planetary engineer who actually works for the company and they go around actually constructing worlds. So I think that's a pretty interesting book that has this concept in it. You've seen Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, right? I've seen it and I've read the book. Yeah, it's definitely one of my favorite like series of like whimsical sci-fi books and they really lean into the whimsicalness of it. It's like totally not serious. Absolutely. But I also really love the movie that came out in the early 2000s. I think it's really good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I just there's definitely the idea of, you know, planetary engineering in that one where they're like creating artificial planets. It's like, yeah. And they in that one, they create, like I said, planets that are totally indistinguishable from ones that are formed naturally. Don't they say that Earth is an artificial planet? I don't remember if Earth was initially an artificial planet, but it definitely gets rebuilt into an artificial planet after it's like destroyed. So the next classification, which is, I think, a pretty popular one is the idea of a disk world. So this is like a flat disk that would be comparable to, you know, like the surface area of the entire Earth, like if the entire Earth was like flattened out. That would essentially be like a disk world. So on a disk world, um, sometimes it, it could just be the bottom that's populated or it could just be the top or it could just be it could be both. And some people think that Terry Pratchett, who basically invented the idea of the disk world, was actually inspired by another classification called an Alderson disk, which is like a huge version of a disk world that's like the size of an entire like planetary system. But an Alderson disk would have like um, a small star um, at, at its center that would kind of like bob like up and down. So the idea behind an Alderson disk, which I don't know if an Alderson disk has ever been used in any popular science fiction, but the idea behind it is that, you know, different species could work together to um, make it and then different species with like different requirements of like how much light they need or how much um, uh, how much heat they need can live in different parts of the Alderson disk. So it's so huge and the different species that are living on it and benefiting from it can actually have a lot of distance and space between each other. I know a few people on the Internet who would say we live on a disc world right now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a theory that people still believe. Like, I mean, I, I would just wonder, like, how logistically they think that works. <laughs> well, I don't know how gravity would work on a disc world. Yeah, I'm not super sure either. I feel like if you ask, like, a flat earther or something, they'd have an explanation of some kind. 
But yeah, I'm not totally sure either. And I'm pretty sure that idea is probably explored in some series somewhere. I mentioned Terry Pratchett's novel Strata earlier. And in Strata, it actually does mention something like an Alderson disc, but as like a theoretical idea that like hasn't been ever made, but like could potentially be made. Because in Strata, you have the company and they have like basically salvaged this like ancient technology from like this like long dead alien race called the Spindle Kings, who basically were really good at terraforming. So they found that technology and that's how they're able to produce artificial worlds and stuff like that. So the Alderson disc and the disc world are definitely two very interesting ideas. All right, let's talk about an orbital tower, right? So in its like very simplest form, it's like a cable that is lowered from maybe a satellite that is, you know, synchronous to the surface of Earth, right? And then there's a cable that extends outward and it could be like attached to an asteroid, some kind of like counterweight uh, that helps keep it in rotation of the Earth, right? So uh, I guess a space elevator could that's, potentially be. That's considered. what I was going to ask. Is this like a space elevator? Well, I think I think an orbital tower is not necessarily a space elevator, but a space elevator is necessarily an orbital tower. Okay. You know what I wanted? Because like in its sense. simplest form, it's got you know like the counterweight, but you could add a space elevator potentially to an or orbital tower. So anybody that's ever seen the Apple TV adaptation of the Foundation show, what I one of the things that I did liked about that show, and there was a lot of things that I didn't like, but one of the things that I did was that it had one of the coolest depictions of a space elevator. Um, so definitely check that out if if for nothing other than seeing like that cool orbital tower slash space elevator. So the first sci-fi novel to ever use this was definitely Arthur C. Clarke's The Fountains of Paradise, and that was actually back in 1979. I haven't read that one. Well, the actual idea actually goes back even longer, but mm. that was the first time it was used in a sci-fi novel. And then the next classification that we're going to talk about here is called a superplanetary sphere. So this is basically an artificial sphere that is between the size of like a star and a normal planet. So objects like this have been appearing in sci-fi for a long time, just like a constructed sphere in space. I don't know. I think the no ships from Dune might even count um, as a superplanetary sphere, but I don't know if they're quite large enough. Well, do people live on the inside of it or is it like an artificial planet where they're on the outside of it? Well, I think it it's an internal thing. I feel like you would probably live on the inside of a okay. superplanetary sphere. Yeah. And the next example is, I think, a really cool example of a megastructure called a rosette. So this is when you would have several large objects, planet-sized objects that are all orbiting each other in a circle. And there may or may not be an object at its center. I love this concept. I love this concept a lot. This um, was in Ringworld. It the was Puppeteers had that. Absolutely. Um, in the book Ringworld by Larry Neven, you have the race of aliens who actually locate the Ringworld, the Puppeteers, um, their home system is actually a rosette. It's got like the uh, planets that uh, rotate each other. So I think that's a super cool megastructure. And I think this one, this type of megastructure uh, specifically shows a level of advancement that some of the other other ones maybe don't because you ha also have to, you know, figure out how to get these objects in like rotation with each other. So I feel like that's probably like a very complex, you know, physics calculation of some kind to master that and get that working right. Now, does this travel or does it just stay in one place? 
I think the rosette stays in one place. The rosette stays in one place. I don't okay. I don't see how that could potentially travel because you would have to have like a propulsion system that keeps everything perfectly aligned while it's also moving. Right. Which I don't know exactly how that would work. But then again, I'm not like an actual physicist. So like maybe it could work theoretically, but I'm not completely sure. So next up on our list is a Topopolis. That's fun to say. Topopolis. 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 <laughs> so this is like a long cylindrical object that's rotating for gravity. And then it's wrapped around a star like this crazy like mess of like spaghetti. So it's like this huge like mess of spaghetti that's like wrapped on a star. So this idea was invented by a guy named Pat Gunkel. And it is also mentioned in Larry Neven's essay. Um, where he classifies the megastructures called bigger than worlds. Has a topopolis ever been used in science fiction? Like, I can't really picture I, this in my mind. I can kind of picture it, but I'm like, uh, nothing comes to mind. Nothing. I don't really have an example of it that I've read either, but it's interesting that this is a classification that gets used in the essay. But yeah, I don't really have, <laughs> I have never seen an example of it in science fiction. Maybe someone out there has. If you've seen an example, Comment on the YouTube video. What is an example that you've seen of a topopolis in science fiction? So moving on to our final example, and I think probably the most famous example of a megastructure is a Dyson sphere. So you've heard of a Dyson sphere, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's like a super common type of megastructure, as I said. So this would be like, it's like an artificial sphere that's kind of wrapped around a star and it kind of like absorbs the energy of that star. And there are actually two different kind of like types of a Dyson sphere. So in Alistair Reynolds house of suns, he mentions that there is a Dyson swarm. Mm -hmm. There's this race of beings that have a Dyson swarm. And I think this is the cooler type of Dyson sphere, in my opinion, because it's not like an enclosed entire sphere that's wrapped around the planet, but it's a collection of like very, very small objects that are swarming around the star. And I just think that's really cool as opposed to like, you know, the traditional idea of the Dyson sphere. That is cool. And House of Suns is just a super cool book in general. If you like megastructures, Absolutely. there are some really big things in House of Suns. Yeah, it's like, one of my favorite books by Alistair Reynolds. Definitely a big part of House of Suns is like the planetary construction, mm -hmm. right? In the beginning of the book, you have Campion and Purse Lane and they're like literally like fixing someone's star, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, definitely House of Suns, great book. I think the Dyson Sphere is my favorite classification of megastructure just because it seems so practical. Like I feel like if we find an advanced species out there in the universe we'll probably find a Dyson Sphere somewhere. That'd be really cool if we could locate a Dyson Sphere somewhere. Well, have you heard that story about um, these astronomers that thought they might have found a Dyson Sphere out there? That sounds vaguely familiar. Like, give, you have the details on it? Absolutely. Sweet. It was in 2015 that scientists discovered a star 1,400 light years away in the constellation Cygnus. And it was producing these unusual light fluctuations interesting and light fluctuations from stars are kind of normal because that's how we find orbiting planets right whenever a planet passes through our viewpoint from the star yeah. of course the star is It'll going dim. to dim a little bit right that, wait, before you get to that i always thought that was so fascinating the idea yeah. that the rotation of the planet 
dimming the stars, how we detect planets. That's so cool to me that we can even detect that. Right. Well, this star, they recorded instances where the star's light would be dimmed as much as 22%. So like way too much. Way more than a planet could do. And it would last up to a few days or even a week. Wow. So some researchers have suggested that this star could be surrounded by a Dyson sphere. And that would explain the dimming of the light. Well, you see, the thing is a Dyson swarm would like allow like almost no light to escape a star, right? right. And then a Dyson sphere would, out of the question, it would block all of the light. So like a Dyson swarm, you could get a little bit. So it seems like maybe it's a maybe it's be like a Dyson the beginning. Sphere. Yeah, maybe just like it's, a bunch of solar panels or like something. Like they're starting to the construct star. the Dyson swarm, perhaps. Yeah, but there's a lot of other theories out there too as that always, <laughs> that makes sense fun. as well. Ruining so like it, I know I'm ruining the fun. No, not you. Just these oh. people with their other theories <laughs> ruining the fun. I know these scientists and their <laughs> theories. The nerve. Yeah, I want to believe there's a Dyson sphere out there somewhere. I'm Absolutely. sure there is, but somewhere. maybe not this star. Um, but like it could be a swarm of comets, right? Or mm -hmm. interstellar dust. It's always interstellar dust. It's always interstellar dust. Anytime you think it's cool, nope, it's dust. It's just dust. <laughs> um, it's the number one theory right now, dust. Um, and you know what? They came to this conclusion after noticing that the dimming was more pronounced in ultraviolet light than infrared light. So any object, any object bigger than a dust grain would cause uniform dimming across all wavelengths, right? Mm -hmm. So it's probably not a Dyson sphere. Probably not a Dyson sphere. But we can sphere. believe. But we can believe because we want to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dyson spheres I think are super cool and they appear in like lots of other things. Like even in like next generation, I'm pretty sure there's a Dyson sphere somewhere that appears. So yeah, for sure. One of my favorites. So we just got done talking about theoretical megastructures and science fiction. But let's take a moment to talk about the technological achievements that exist today. So, Quinn, I'm going to put you on the spot here. If you had to take a guess, what do you think is the biggest man-made structure? Hmm. I don't know. Either some ridiculously tall phallic building or like some <laughs> giant like statue in like China or India, maybe, because I know they're big about the like religious statues in india especially mm -hmm. well it's actually kind of a trick question ah. if you type in if you type into google what the biggest man-made structure is you're going to get like 15 different answers because there's <laughs> yeah. different classifications right well do you mean the longest do you mean the tallest uh, is yeah. it surface area is it the heaviest is it's it like the what most you expensive mean by biggest yeah, yeah so everyone's mean? got a different answer but i picked three examples based on three different metrics the longest the largest by volume and the tallest Cool. So let's start by the longest man-made structure. What do you think it is? Okay, longest man-made structure. Just like a guess, the Great Wall of China? Because they say guess. you can see it from space. So the Great Wall of China is the longest man-made structure. And can you see it from space? Like I've been told my whole life. No. So it's a common it misconception. Space. I know. I just learned this the other day. You cannot see it from space. I, I believe can... that my whole life. You kind of can. You kind of can't. My third so, grade teacher, Mrs. Barnes, told me that. She lied. So she was lying to me. So it's been debunked many times. But according to astronauts, the wall is only visible from the lower part of lower 
Earth orbit. And it's only visible during like perfect conditions. The weather has to be right. So you got to be pretty low down and it's got to be pretty clear for you to be able to see it. So that makes sense. But the wall is still the longest man-made structure ever made. It's about 13,000 miles long. Jesus. Or 21,000 kilometers. Jesus Christ. It was built over the course of hundreds of years. Wow. Six different Chinese dynasties and it's 2,300 years old. Well, you see, that really makes me think when you say stuff like that, because it's like we have in the past as a society constructed these like huge structures over time. So when it comes to something like megastructures, some of these are going to be massive undertakings that require like massive amounts of resources. And it is going to have to be a collective human effort over like, you know, hundreds of years potentially to construct these things. And, you know, I hope we never lose that the ability to cooperate like that i don't know we might have already lost that ability as a species because i don't see a lot of you know big things that we're cooperating on over like long periods of time anymore that seems like it's kind of been a thing of the past Mm -hmm. we don't have necessarily like the connective tissue with each other anymore which is a little bit disheartening but hopefully we can we can get some mega structures here eventually so moving on to the tallest man-made structure what do you think is the tallest Okay, tallest man-made structure. I'm going to go with some Hindu statue, maybe. No, no. It's actually a skyscraper. Of course. The Burj Khalifa skyscraper in Dubai. Ah, is that the one with that, like, huge spire? Yes, yes. Okay, I I think I've seen that. It's about 2,722 feet long. That's just over half a mile. Whoa. And not only is it the tallest building in the world, it's the tallest freestanding structure in the world, highest number of stories in the world, Uh, highest occupied floor in the world. That scares me. Highest outdoor observation deck in the world. I wouldn't go. (laughs) And you're really going to hate this. It has the elevator with the longest travel distance in the world. See, yeah, you just, I'm not waiting that long in an elevator to get anywhere. Quinn hates elevators. I absolutely hate elevators. I'm claustrophobic. I was scarred by a couple YouTube videos of elevator failures when I was a teenager. So I'm just like, no, 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 I don't like elevators. And I've always been a claustrophobic person. And then also like with having like a mega structure, right, in space, it just seems like this huge thing that's like, I don't know, pop me, pop this bubble. You know what I mean? And I just feel the same thing with a very tall building. It's just like pop this bubble. And I don't know. It just makes me uncomfortable. It freaks me out a little bit. Too tall, too long of a weight on the elevator. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so moving on to the largest by volume. Any idea what structure on earth is the largest by volume largest by volume man-made honestly have no idea some kind of building of some kind this one would be hard to guess it's the boeing everett factory so where they make airplanes it's an airplane assembly facility located in everett washington united states all right that makes sense because you would need like a huge space to construct airplanes airplanes are gigantic some of them are huge. huge It's, it takes up about 98 acres and is Jeesh. 13.3 million cubic meters. Jeesh. That's incredible. It's gigantic. It's incredibly huge. Now, I've been to um, the Tillamook Air Museum. Mm-hmm. It blew my mind how huge it was. But it was only seven acres and 15 stories high. But it is the largest clear span wooden structure in the world. It actually looks like a... Um, spacing guild highliner from dune just sitting on the ground that is it blew my mind when i saw it i would love to see it so that's but that's like like you said that is 
seven acres compared that was to only 93. Acres. Yeah. Like, holy crap. That's incredible. What's the biggest man-made structure you've ever seen? Biggest man-made structure I've ever seen. If I'm going to be honest, it's probably some random tall building in San Francisco because I'm from like the deep south. So like I didn't grow up around like a lot of like huge objects and big buildings and stuff like that. So I wouldn't actually know unless you count um, Stone Mountain in Georgia, which we don't talk about Stone Mountain in Georgia. But <laughs> so unless you count that, I don't know if I've really seen any like huge things. I'm still looking forward to it. I still got some huge things to see in my life. <laughs> so that's where we've gotten on Earth as far as like huge structures. But we haven't really gotten into like the building huge structures in outer space really yet. Feel like we're on the verge of it. We, we haven't really gotten to that place yet. Well, the biggest thing we have in space, of course, is the International Space Station. Oh, yeah, obviously. But it's only about the length of a football field. So, so like it's, 109 meters. So it just definitely does not count as a megastructure right now. Not really. But it is so big that it was not sent up to space all at once. They had to send it up in pieces and then build it in orbit. To me, that's like the coolest thing ever it that we actually cool. did that, that we constructed a, sta a space station in orbit. Yeah, that's 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 absolutely fascinating. And it makes me like applaud like the level of engineering that we've achieved as a species already. We just got to try harder to get like to do more stuff. It's so fascinating. It's also visible from Earth with the naked eye. You've seen it before, right? We've seen it go by a yeah. couple times with the telescope for sure. And it passes by 16 times a day. It orbits the planet very, very 16 fast. times. So it's not the largest man-made structure of all time, but it is the most expensive man-made structure how much did it cost 150 billion dollars give them another 150 billion <laughs> build another one and it costs nasa three billion dollars a year just for the upkeep so how much what percentage is that of their budget then if it's three billion a year that's about a third of their human space flight budget We'll see. They should have a bigger human space flight budget see i'm yeah. i'm of the opinion that nasa is way underfunded it saddens me that we take money away from NASA every single year when it's like Earth is just like this little thing that we have. And we definitely should be trying to expand and trying to learn as much about like what is out there as we possibly can. And I just I just wonder, like, what happened to our sense of exploration as a species? Like the final frontier is like right there and we could be we could be going right now. And we're just like not doing anything. And it's so frustrating. And then I is just like a weak little individual. I don't have the power to do it. So it's just like, ah, come on. Well, I have some sad news. Oh, no. The International Space Station is scheduled to be decommissioned in the year 2031. Why are they doing this to me? Well, it was always <laughs> supposed to be decommissioned at some point. It wasn't supposed to last forever, right? They had a contract. It's old technology at this point. It's it's older and older and older. So we yeah, develop new stuff. Yeah, now. it was actually supposed to be decommissioned uh, next year in 2024. Um, but we're but holding on. We're holding on to it for a little bit longer. And they're building a new one, right? Well, Russia is building their own. Okay. Um, China just got done building theirs. Oh, yeah. The Heavenly Palace. That. And um, they're planning a transition phase between the International Space Station and possibly some private companies setting up their own oh, space stations. My, But see, this is to be expected. This was to be expected in the capitalist society that we live in. We were never going to get to space with like some collective interna international effort, you know, like 2001 A Space Odyssey it was always going to be these co corporations, these billionaires that are, you know, commodifying it 
and, you know, just like, you know, turning it into a commercial experience. You know, I'm just convinced that in like 300 years, like so much of humanity is just going to be like the uploaded consciousness of Jeff Bezos versus the uploaded consciousness of Elon Musk, <laughs> both like with their super like huge, like mega structures with like weapons tied into them, like battling each other for like dominion over like worlds. It's got, I feel like that's where we're headed. We're not headed towards like the Star Trek future. We're really headed towards some really dystopian, like Dune-esque stuff. And we're going <laughs> to, yeah, it's not going to be good. It's going to, yeah, space capitalism. It's, it seems Frank Herbert really was right with the way he, you know, the way he like showed our development in outer space, where it just basically became like a mirror of feudalism, where like it's just all about home companies, monopoly, and it's all about these monopolies and it's all about like enriching the powers that be like the emperor and the great houses of the lands rad. Uh, I just see it coming and I'm just like, the, it was supposed to be a warning. It was supposed to be a warning, not like a blueprint, guys. Anyway, why can't we just cooperate and get to space? I don't get it. I definitely agree, but I have faith. You know, maybe having billionaires fight over space real estate <laughs> is a good thing. That's we just can have some advancement. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah, I get what you mean. It's like capitalism has like driven a lot of development. And so maybe it just needs that in the beginning. And then maybe after all of that happens, then we can we can get past those growing pans and then we can get to the Star Trek future. <laughs> well, are you going to visit the Blue Origin space station or the SpaceX space station? Um, I don't know if I trust either one of those. It's <laughs> going to be a while before like I'm visiting any space station. It's going to be after decades approving the fact that like we can safely get there and like leave and decades of nothing happening where like hundreds of people die so it's like no i'm not on it yet but like definitely like way in the distant future like i want to like take my grandkids to the moon <laughs> and, and they'll, they'll probably hate going to the moon because they'll have already been to the moon like 12 times but i'll just be like no i didn't they didn't have the moon back in my day going to the moon again <laughs> i don't know <laughs> i'd be that grandpa So we've talked about the classifications of megastructures that people have developed over the years. And we've talked about some the real world potential of megastructures and what we have technologically speaking, how far we've come like in reality. But let's now talk about some of our own like favorite megastructures that appear in science fiction. And I'm going to start with you, James. Like what's one of your favorite megastructures ever? I think I know what you're going to say. <laughs> well, I think... When everyone thinks of a megastructure, the first thing that comes to mind is the Death Star. The Death Star. So the Death Star, also known as the DS-1 Orbital Battle Station, <laughs> is a sphere-shaped planet killer from the franchise Star Wars. Have you heard of it? No, I don't, what, I, I don't know. <laughs> You've never Star seen a Star Wars? War? What is, <laughs> I have no idea what that is. I'm kidding, of course. <laughs> so the Death Star measures 100 miles in diameter has 357 internal levels and a surface area of 4,500 square kilometers. If we were to build a Death Star today, it would cost around 21 quintillion dollars. Jesus. I don't even know if the whole world has that much. It's better not build it. I, I'm getting, but Elon Musk in, in 300 years, his uploaded consciousness, he'll have one. Jeff Bezos <laughs> will have two though. And then Elon Musk will be really jealous. So he'll construct Starkiller Base to fight against Jeff Bezos. Nice. <laughs> so this battle station housed 342,953 members of the Imperial Army, 
25,984 stormtroopers and nearly 2 million personnel of varying combat eligibility. Jesus Christ, so it's absolutely just huge. So the Death Star's purpose was to keep the Empire in line out of fear, right? Yeah. Yeah. So if you dive into the Star Wars novels like I have, all the deep lore, all the books that have been written about the Death Star and Emperor Palpatine, you find out that he had a greater plan for his Death Stars. Oh, yeah? Yeah. More destruction? No. He wanted to protect the galaxy from outside forces. Yeah. Well, that's the whole reason he wanted to take over. Well, he was still like pretty evil. Was to protect us, Quinn. He's still, he's still, he's misunderstood. I I don't know about that. I feel like he's like the embodiment of evil. Like everything about like his appearance and he just looks that way because he accidentally electrocuted himself. He didn't accidentally electrocute himself. He got like electrocuted by like Mace Windu or somebody, right? Who like does that to him? Well, he tried to electrocute Mace Windu and he turned it. It's, it's he's so not evil. He was trying to protect us with his Death Stars. Well, then why is he all like dark side and like tripping out and stuff like that? And trying to kill I people. I don't know. But get, but get this, get this. The Death Star was meant to be a world of its own. And unlike mm-hmm. other battle stations, it had entertainment okay. for inhabitants. Okay, right? you're d- it was a happy place. You're doing propaganda for the Empire right now. Like this is, this is what this is. Maybe a little bit. You're an Maybe Empire propagandist. Bit. The Death Star had a commissary, and it even had a bar. And off-duty stormtroopers were known to meet and play a violent, prohibited ball game in the station's zero-gravity filtration system. Now, wouldn't that be fun? It seems quite luxurious for the fascists who live on the Death Star. (laughs) Yeah, it seems like a big version of maybe like the Enterprise, almost. You know what I mean? Like the way the Enterprise in TNG is like super luxurious, but it's also like this super capable, capable battle station. I don't know if the Enterprise could destroy an entire planet, but it definitely could like really screw up an entire planet. Like, oh yeah, for, for sure. sure. And we've seen like in TNG how they can like affect like the entire like they can like raise the temperature on worlds if they want to with that ship. So, and it's not fascist. <laughs> <laughs> so what else do you got? So another giant ship that I love is a multi generational starship called the Vanguard. So. Present-day physics restricts us by putting a limit on the speed of interstellar travel. So the first ships we send out to distant stars will most likely be one-way trips, right? Yeah. So these ships will need to accommodate a large population with its own ecology, providing food, water, and oxygen. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the earliest depictions of a multi-generational ship in fiction was in Robert Heinlein's Orphans of the Sky classic so it's a book about a gigantic cylindrical starship destined for a new home for humanity however there was a mutiny so most of the officers were killed off and it has been so long that no one really remembers why they're on a starship see that's super they don't even realize they're on a starship they just think this is reality you know um Adrian Tchaikovsky also plays with that idea a little bit in Children of Time. The Arkship Gilgamesh. Arkship Gilgamesh yeah. also plays with that idea. I don't idea. think the Arkship Gilgamesh is as big. It's not as big, mm-hmm. but it, he plays with that idea is that we could be on this like last vessel for like a very, very long time and totally like forget the purpose eventually. And I'm sure like there's a Doctor Who episode that deals with that. A lot of sci-fi deals with that cool idea. It's a very cool idea. It's a cool idea that you can play with. That's definitely super cool. So the Vanguard, it's it's a giant cylinder. And it has multiple layers and they spin. 
So the outer layers have normal gravity, but as you get further into the center of the cylinder, there's less gravity there. Mm -hmm. So the people in the center have evolved differently. Differently, yeah. They're, in a different environment. They, they're called muties or mutants. That's super interesting. It's a really cool book. That's very, very interesting. So we're going to talk about one of my favorite megastructures, and this is one that it's always like super scared me. So this is the Borg cube. So in my opinion, the Borg is the greatest threat that the Federation ever faced in um, Star Trek. So the Borg were this hive minded group of aliens who assimilated all life and technology that they thought was useful to them. And once they decided to assimil assimilate you, they had this saying, resistance is futile because you could not resist the Borg. They always got their way. I think the TV show Voyager explores um, the one species that the Borg could not um, assimilate, the one species that could resist the Borg. And they're even more terrible than horrifying. But anyway, back to the Borg. We first encounter the Borg in TNG in the episode Q Hu Who. Q Who. So you have this godlike being, Q, who basically says to Picard, you have no idea what is out here in space. So I'm going to show you a little bit. And he basically does this on a whim just to be petty as kind of like a little test. So he sends the Enterprise into Borg territory. And once the Borg see humanity, and once the Borg recognize that, recognizes that humanity exists, they are coming. And we can't do anything to flee. There's a really intense scene in that episode where we're trying to outrun the Borg ship, and it's just getting faster and faster and faster and adapting and adapting and adapting. That's part of what the Borg do. They adapt. But anyway, they fly around mainly in these huge, ominous, giant cubes that are just floating in space. And that's the first thing that we encounter in that episode. We see that huge cube and it's extremely fast and it's extremely powerful. And it almost looks like it's constructed from maybe modular material because the Borg themselves are, mar are modular. So the Borg cube is up there with my favorite megastructures. I think it has just like an ominous presence that other things don't have. And I don't know what its size is compared to the Death Star. It's bigger than the Death Star. It's bigger than the Death yeah. Star. I don't know if a Borg, I don't, I feel like a Borg cube could maybe challenge the Death Star. I would like to see like how in Star Trek, the Empire would react to a Borg invasion. Yikes. I mean, Star Wars, you know what I mean? Yeah. I would like to see how in Star Wars, the Empire would react to a Borg invasion. It goes back to my point of why the Death Star was built in the first place. Yeah. Not for fear, but to protect us. And also to instill fear and blow oh, up okay. um, Princess Leia's planet for no reason. <laughs> 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 so the next one we got is Rama. So this is, of course, Arthur C. Clarke's um, classic rendezvous with Rama. And the main reason I wanted to put this one on the list as well is because Denis Villeneuve is actually going to be adapting Rendezvous with Rama. I can't wait. I absolutely cannot wait for Denis Villeneuve's adaptation of Rendezvous with Rama. It's so perfect for his style. So in this story, basically this huge cylinder that's definitely of like intelligent construction enters the solar system. And this is like a perfect cylinder that's like 20 kilometers in diameter and like 50 kilometers long. It's pretty freaking huge. And it's humankind's first contact with anything extraterrestrial. So we essentially send a vessel with a crew uh, uh, to Brahma and we investigate what's going on. And it's kind of like it's a quiet, slow 
short cerebral sci-fi story that I think is just really like interesting for like its concepts that it's that it introduces and just the feel of it. It's not a book where a lot happens. It's more about like it's more of an exploratory sci-fi book where it's like, oh, look at this concept, look at that concept. And I think it's really interesting. And I think this book has probably done a lot to develop ideas about um, megastructures and the way like we could potentially like live in space. And it also has that thing where it's like, well, like most megastructures where it has a, a rotation that creates um, artificial gravity inside. And it's also got an ocean and it's got structures that look like they could potentially be buildings. And there, it's full of these half robotic, half organic organisms that the book refers to as biots. So Rama is definitely, I think, deserves to be on the list for cool megastructures in sci-fi. It's definitely one of my favorites. And I'm just like so excited to see Villeneuve's version because he is so good at just like these grand, huge shots. Like he does a lot of that in Arrival. He obviously does a lot of it in Dune. But I am super interested in seeing more like shots like that that are like in outer space, right? Because a lot of Dune takes place on the surface of the planet. So it would be really cool to see like some of the shots in outer space and Rama and like how big it is and cool it looks. And Arrival is kind of a similar movie. So I'm interested to see how he's going to make this a little bit different. Arrival is definitely similar in a lot of ways. And I know that movie is actually based off of a different short story too. But definitely, I think he took a lot of inspiration from Rama as well, because there's some story beats that aren't present in that original story that are in Rama and also in Arrival. So definitely, I think Villeneuve definitely read the story young. He's he's I, I really like Villeneuve because of the way he talks about um, sci-fi books and the way he talks about the books that he's going to adapt. Like, I really like the way he talks about Doom because it shows me that he really understands like what the message was supposed to be. And I'm hoping that he also understands what the message of Rama is supposed to be. Um, I think he definitely does. So I'm very, 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 very excited for that. So if you know me, you know that I am a huge gamer. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite games is Destiny 2. Now, I'll be honest, I kind of fell off the wagon recently. I haven't been (laughs) playing it. It's not what it used to be, but I have put a lot of hours into that game. But there's a mega structure that has always fascinated me. And it's called the Leviathan. The Leviathan. Tell us about it. The Leviathan is a giant spaceship. And it eats entire planets whole, grinds them up, and turns them into a thick purple wine. Interesting. For consumption. So that's, okay, that's interesting. That's almost like Dune-like when you're talking about the... the, the um, overconsumption of a, of a space emperor, the decadence of a space emperor, right. the fact that he would use the resources of an entire world for pleasure. It gets even more Dune-like. Its, its original function is unknown, but it did serve as a pleasure craft for the exiled emperor Callus of the Interesting. Cabal. And it's said to be modeled after a mythical beast from the dreams of worms. That's, Whatever that means. That's very fascinating. And also... <laughs> I don't know anything about destiny, but I do know that Leviathan is a biblical reference. Mm-hmm. This 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 sea dragon creature is all consuming beasts. Absolutely. So it actually looks a lot like a spacing guild highliner from Dune, um, but with a city-sized palace on top. And that palace, of course, is where the emperor and his servants reside. And then the coolest part is it has two artificial suns that hover in place above the highest tower that's so cool it's a really cool ship look up a picture of it in google sometime absolutely massive so my final 
mention, honorable mention, Larry Niven's Ring World. So we talked about that a little bit earlier. The Ring World, as we talked about, is like, it's like a circular ribbon that would be surrounding a star. And the thing about the Ring World, and Larry Niven discusses this in his book, is that the the amount of matter and resources that it would take to construct this would have drained the resources from countless planets, countless worlds would have had to been used to construct the ring world. Um, so it represented the collective efforts of a race of an entire race of beings known as the pack. But due to, you know, internal conflict that um, happens amongst civilizations, often the ring world was left basically unprotected. And because it was left unprotected, a cataclysmic event, um, an asteroid impact actually led to the collapse of their society. Um, so the ring world is definitely, like we mentioned before, it's definitely an interesting one. And we talked about it a bit earlier, so I'm not going to get too much into it. But I just wanted to give another recommendation. Check out the ring world if you're interested in learning um, about megastructures, because like he introduces a lot of concepts that are um, that have been used a lot since, especially in the um, preceding books. I, I like that book a lot. I just picked it up last week, finished it a couple days ago. Um, it's campy. Mm-hmm. It's good. It's got hard sci-fi in there. It's got some interesting characters. One that has a gift of luck, yeah, <laughs> which I, is I, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know about the Tila Brown luck girl, but you know, <laughs> a lot of the other book, a lot of the book is pretty good. And I also love um, the uh, puppeteer race in Ringworld. They're pretty silly, but it's like. They're like these two-headed like bird creatures that are like super cowardly, but they're very advanced at the same time. And they're the ones that are actually commissioning this mission to the ring world by gathering like some other species of aliens and saying like, oh, do this. (laughs) I love ring world. It's a classic. If you're a fan of sci-fi, you have to read it. Absolutely. So if I had to live on a megastructure in science fiction, I think that I would choose Elysium. Oh, that's a great. It seems pretty comfortable. I mean, yeah, if you had the money to live on Elysium, like why not live on Elysium? They've got everything they need. It's like pure luxury. And then they've got those med pods that like houses, lawns. Oh, yeah. The med pods. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I could totally raise a family in Elysium. (laughs) I think anybody could. I think my second choice would be Starkiller Base? See, Starkiller Base, the problem I would have with Starkiller Base is the fact that it seems like they're really doing a lot of damage to the yeah. planet. And it's kind of like falling apart uh, by the I end of the movie. I don't know. I just, I like snow and I like trees. Yeah. So I, I would but, do very well there. Yeah, Except but how long is it going to last? When the planet implodes, I would not <laughs> yeah. do well. So what megastructure in science fiction would you want to live in? Uh, let's see, let's see, let's see. I, I like kind of like that 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 um, cylinder that like kind of ring world that's like kind of bent in interstellar. That oh, okay. one's cool. That one seems pretty nice. I think I would get I vertigo in there. I would get dizzy just the way it bends. Oh, up. the way it like curves up, yeah. like when they throw the ball and it like curves to the other house. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's well, talk about a curveball. <laughs> oh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> yeah, I think I'd get used to it. I think I'd be okay with it, and the view would be like super great. I think I'd get used to it. So as we've talked about, megastructures are a staple of science fiction. So what is it about megastructures that continues to attract sci-fi writers and readers alike? Well, I think it's kind of like I said earlier. Space is enormous. Space is so huge. And so since space is so huge, that means there's endless space for imagination. 
So how big can you go? If you think of the biggest thing you can imagine, it's going to be in outer space because there's no other space for it to be. So in the OG Star Wars, we got the Death Star. It's like a huge destructive object. And then later we get Starkiller Base. So they made it even bigger. So you always got to go bigger with things. We can always imagine something bigger. And it's fun to explore that. And it's also fun to explore the consequences of that. So I think that's why we keep going to megastructures, because it's such an obvious thing. Like, what do we fill up all of this space with? I've noticed that the idea of megastructures, for whatever reason, it makes some people slightly uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? Well, I think even megastructures, the idea that makes me uncomfortable, like we were talking about the tall buildings in Dubai and that, that feeling of just being in this bubble that can be popped. You know, I think it's because when you see something like, for example, like Star Trek Beyond, I believe it was, where you, they have that huge giant like dome thing in space. And I remember like Comic Book Girl 19 actually in her review of it saying something like that just it's waiting to be popped. And I like totally agree. It's just like my first thought is like, what happens if someone pops this bubble? And it's like in Ring World, like the impact of the asteroid totally led to like the the cascade failure of like all the systems on the ring world. It totally destroyed all this, all of the civilizations that were present. So I think that's the fear. And I think that's why I think a lot of people, if you ask them if they would live on a space station or a megastructure, they would say no, because I feel like if something impacts the earth, I kind of have a chance of surviving depending on how big the object is. But if something hits like this, this intricately developed, um, um, space station this intricately developed interconnected like system like who knows that's gonna probably cause cascade failure and i feel like if an asteroid or something hits that and goes through it it's gonna go through like multiple parts of the system and damage a bunch of stuff at once and it's gonna be a nightmare so i just i think that is really scary like when things go wrong they're really gonna fail so you're saying that earth is the best mega structure we got and we need to protect it with our life we need to protect the earth for sure absolutely that's what i'm saying all right so this has been episode 10 of the cosmic chronicles podcast you can find our podcast as we said earlier wherever you get your podcast on spotify apple podcast amazon music or google podcast also click the link in the description to be directed to our social media pages including youtube instagram and discord new episodes every other friday and don't forget to check out the indiegogo campaign for my new graphic novel the lie behind the star